From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. A body blow for Democrats. The Republicans win a closely watched special election in Georgia. The most expensive house race in history, one on which Democrats had pinned their hopes and dreams, ended on Thursday. Republican Karen Handel is celebrating a victory in Georgia's 6th district. She beat Democrat John Ossoff to cap. Obviously a devastating loss for Democrats. They had invested about $30 million between the campaign and the outside group supporting the candidate. The race was deluged with money and media attention for two reasons. First, this was last in a line of special elections when Democrats saw a chance to make inroads into a solid GOP Congress, only to be thwarted every time. And second, it was in a district the National Democratic Party thought it could win. Foiled again. President Trump chimed in on the election results, tweeting, quote, Well, the special elections are over, and those that want to make America great again are 5 and 0. All the fake news, all the money spent equals zero. Technically, it was four, unless you're counting both Georgia's election and the runoff, but never mind. Of course, the media are already looking to what comes next. Many anticipated this race would serve as a preview of what's to come in the 2018 midterm. And now the question, what does this all mean for what's happening here in Washington and potentially down the road in 2018? Just another gut-wrenching reminder that taking back control from Republicans is still an uphill battle. These special elections have been fool's gold for the Democrats. David Daly is a senior fellow at Fair Vote. In Georgia, both parties poured a record $55 million into this race, essentially to rent a seat for the next 18 months that would bear essentially no consequence. It would cut the Democratic deficit in the House from 24 seats down to 23. The real problem, says Daly, is gerrymandering, the art of redrawing legislative districts to make them more favorable for your party. States redraw their districts every 10 years based on U.S. Census data. In theory, this is to ensure that district lines reflect shifting demographics. But in practice, it's a vehicle for electoral skullduggery, known as... Packing and cracking. You either try to pack all of the other side's votes into as few districts as possible so you can claim all of the surrounding ones for yourself, or you try to crack them and divide them as unpowerfully as you can across as many districts as possible. True, deck-stacking district lines every census year is a time-honored tradition that dates back to the nation's birth. But in 2010, Republicans captured massive numbers of state houses and governorships and set out to rejigger the game so that the winner always took all. They lined up incredibly sophisticated mapmakers armed with the kind of software and big data sets that allowed them to draw incredibly precise and surgical lines. And so it came to pass that in 2012 and 2014 and in 2016, there was essentially zero swing in the U.S. House. In these key swing states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, states that have been going back and forth purplish states, bellwethers. Exactly one seat has changed over the last three cycles. We do not want our politics reduced to an every-decade arms race that is fought between the two parties over redistricting. And you haven't even mentioned those districts that are so lopsided that the Democrats don't even bother putting up a candidate. It's one of the most depressing aspects of this. In North Carolina and in Wisconsin, states where there's a lot of electoral energy, a lot of activism, in 49% of all assembly races in 2016, there simply wasn't a challenger. In Georgia, it was 81%. You cannot have a healthy democracy when you don't have the possibility of voting out the person who represents you. And yet... All of the coverage of these special elections that were just held amid torrents of publicity kind of ignored this fundamental aspect that subverts democracy. Our elite political media thinks that 
gerrymandering is that old thing that puts you to sleep in civics class in eighth grade. They are deeply invested in a narrative, in a horse race. If the political media believes that all of the state house and all of the congressional races are decided for the next 10 years, what fun is that to write about? As a result, we are not talking about the fundamental structural problems in our democracy that we need to be. For those who despair, there is something afoot that may offer some hope. The Supreme Court has decided to hear a case involving district voting lines in Wisconsin. Justice has agreed today to hear whether Republicans drew electoral districts that violated the rights of Democrats. Too much partisanship in the drawing of electoral maps is illegal, but it has never defined how much is too much. It's a really interesting story. The Supreme Court has never been willing to intervene in partisan gerrymandering and say when it has gone too far. The last time a partisan gerrymandering case reached the Supreme Court is the Veith case out of Pennsylvania in 2004, in which Democratic citizens in Pennsylvania filed suit saying that their constitutional rights had been abridged by the way that the districts had been gerrymandered after the 2000 census. It was a deeply divided court. You had the conservative bloc and you had the liberal bloc, and you had Anthony Kennedy in the middle. The conservative bloc, led by Justice Scalia, said, we've never weighed in on this before, let's close the door. And Kennedy said, no, I don't think we ought to close the door. I also don't see any standard in front of me here that I like. So he sides with the conservatives, but he sets off a search for gerrymandering's holy grail. All of these law professors and political science folks and stats nerds and data geeks trying to craft the standard that would entice the court into this political thicket. And they came up with something called the efficiency gap. What is that? The efficiency gap attempts to quantify when a gerrymander has gone too far to create a percentage of people whose votes have been squandered. From 1972 through 2000, the median efficiency gap in all state legislative elections in America is zero. In 2010, it goes off the chart. And then came this Wisconsin case, Gill versus Whitford, that is sort of the poster child for how awry things can go. Gill versus Whitford is based off of the drawing of Wisconsin's state assembly lines after the 2010 census. The story of how those lines got drawn is something out of a John Grisham political thriller. Operatives going to a law firm across the street from the Capitol, barricading themselves in something they called the map room, claiming attorney-client privilege for the work that they did. There were damaged hard drives. It was an incredible case of subterfuge, such a blatant partisan gerrymander that a three-judge U.S. District Court last year used the efficiency gap, said this has gone too far, ordered the drawing of new lines, the first time in three decades that any court was willing to call a partisan gerrymander unconstitutional. Justice Kennedy left the door open, and now in comes this case. And let's just say it does accept a standard for too far. What impact would that have on these many other states where this kind of software has been used to do similar mischief? If they accept the efficiency gap as a standard to measure when a partisan gerrymander has gone too far, there are six or seven other states that would be in immediate violation. Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Texas, This is in many ways the most meaningful case impacting the future of our democracy since the courts decided Citizens United. Apart from this case, where do you think we should be focusing our attention when trying to divine what direction our politics will go in the next two, four, or eight years? Pay no attention to the fool's gold like Georgia's sixth. If the Democrats want a road back, there is one right in front of them. It is the governor's races in these wildly gerrymandered states, the 2017 governor's race in Virginia, and there are five governor's races next year in Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, 
and Florida, all states where governors have veto power over the maps that the legislature draws. 2020 could actually be over for the Democrats before it starts if they don't wake up and focus on the right races. They need to understand that spending $30 million on Georgia's sixth squanders an awful lot of time and resources. It is a band-aid when the party is bleeding out. Something changed in 2010. It has broken our politics in a very serious way. It has made it dysfunctional and more extreme and not representative in the way that it is supposed to be. And the press is doing us a disservice in the way it's covered. Thank you, David. My pleasure. David Daly is a senior fellow at Fair Vote and author of a book on gerrymandering, the title of which I can't tell you because of FCC rules, but it rhymes with rat duct. And it will be available in paperback on the 4th of July. Coming up, the U.S. Census is on the ropes. This is on the media. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. As the Supreme Court molds the fate of gerrymandering, another public institution continues its role in shaping elections to come. On April 1st, 2020, the Census Bureau will embark on its decennial mission to count every person in America and shifts in the population so that the number of electoral college votes and congressional seats can be adjusted accordingly. But as the Bureau reminds us every Every decade, census data are not just about politics. We have made the census much more than a gathering of statistics. Wherever we are, whatever we want to become, it can help us all, in Lincoln's words, to better judge what to do and how to do it. Free and open census data fuel journalism and academic research. They help businesses decide where to build grocery stores, where local governments put new schools and roads. Of course, collecting this massive data trove is a huge and costly endeavor, undertaken in large part by hundreds of thousands of census takers going door to door, a sometimes naughty enterprise spoofed by Saturday Night Live in 2000. How many people live in this residence? Oh, boy. That's a good question. <laughs> I'm bad with numbers. Maybe 80. 80 people live in this apartment? Seems high. Doesn't it? Not 80. How about four? But an overcount is not what should concern us. An undercount is far more likely, especially amid a series of recent shakeups at the Bureau. The director of the U.S. Census Bureau is resigning. John Thompson will leave on June 30th. This comes as the agency is in a funding crisis. In the 2017 fiscal year, Congress approved almost $1.5 billion for the Bureau, and that's about 10% below what was requested. In the proposed budget for 2018, another $1.5 billion was earmarked, 
But experts say that that falls far below what is needed. And Kenneth Pruitt, who served as census director from 1998 to 2001, says that the repercussions from an underfunded, leaderless, and crippled census will cascade far and wide. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Politico called the U.S. Census the largest civic action undertaken by the entire country, enshrined in the Constitution that aims to count every person living in the United States, regardless of race, gender, or citizenship status. At least, it writes, that has been its intent since James Madison helped design the first census in 1790. So, why is it so crucial? We would not have a representative democracy. How would you know how many seats each state would get? Every 10 years, we reapportion the Congress, proportionate to population size, as the Constitution declared. Secondly, once you have these numbers, maybe you can learn something about the society, which would allow you to govern it better. It also plays a pretty big financial role. I mean, it determines how billions of dollars are funneled to states for schools or roads or anything, right? Exactly. About $4 billion currently are in direct funding. However, many, 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 many more dollars are funded indirectly because of the census counts from Bureau of Labor Statistics, Health and Human Services, Department of Transport. All of these use census data for their own program activities. Staying with history for a moment, nowadays we're all familiar with the idea that big data can be weaponized. But there's an early example towards the end of the Civil War. That's when General William Sherman used the 1860 census data to plan part of his infamous March to the Sea. He needed to find out where the crops were. He had to feed this vast moving army. Far away from Union supply lines. No No food. Absolutely, no food. They really were frightened uh, of going down there not finding food. And what happened, fascinating, they actually got together some maps and superimposed the census data from 1860 on the maps. And he knew exactly where he was going, what he would run into, roughly how many people ought to be in that area. So it's worth noting that the census, which is supposed to be scientific and nonpartisan, is often swept up into political anxiety. The 1920 census showed that we were more urban than rural. And if you go back in your mind to the 1920s, this was the moment of the Red Scare. The first Red Scare. The first Red Scare, exactly. And so the conservative Congress, still very rural in its origins, simply said, we're not going to reapportion. We're not going to give all those seats to these radical city-dwelling immigrants. Congress refused to use it? Uh, Yeah, they just stonewalled for a decade, and we didn't reapportion until 1930. Didn't they say that the information must be flawed? Well, yes, that was their excuse. There was actually no rationale for that. They were fairly certain we were still a majority rural nation. Uh, It has echoes today, because today there are many people saying we are losing our country because the whites are going to be a minority. Last month, the Census Bureau's director, John Thompson, announced that he would resign. He'll be gone by the end of the month. As the Bureau ramps up to 2020, it doesn't have a manager, and it seems to have insufficient funding. How will that affect things? Hugely. This is the moment of ramp-up time. Most critically, we do an end-to-end test of the census. That is, you actually run the census as if it's actually happening about three years before you actually do a census. It was going to be in four parts of the country, so you'd have a good overview in Indian reservation, rural area, urban area, and so forth. It is now planned for only one area, Rhode Island. They have to start getting their ads ready testing them in half a dozen different languages. And it is not going to do an end-to-end test of the partnership strategy. These are the trusted voices that talk people into cooperating with a census they may not otherwise want to do. You mean like Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks, exactly. (laughs) Or the Catholic Church, for example, very, very active in the Southwest with respect to migrant workers, especially if they're undocumented. This is the year they have to get ready to do all of that. And they're flat-funded. There was a draft executive order leaked in January that proposed the director of the Census Bureau include questions to determine U.S. citizenship and immigration status, thus scaring many people away from the census. The executive order hasn't been signed, but the idea has many groups up in arms. There were some ads in recent counts that have sought to reassure people in immigrant communities that filling out census forms wouldn't endanger them. They had posters in bodegas and unemployment offices. So as far as ads go, 
When we've spent so much money and time trying to convince people that they won't be endangered if they fill out the survey, do you think having that executive order signed could undo a lot of work? Oh, absolutely. But I think some part of that will happen without the executive order. I think that will aggravate it. There's a huge mistrust out here right now toward the government. I am very fearful that we will have a bad census, even if there's no attempt to make it a bad census, though I can make an argument for why that may make sense for some interest groups. Make an argument. The Republican Party has done a very, very good job of converting roughly 50% of its voter strength to roughly 60-65% of its legislative strength and gubernatorial strength. It's done that through gerrymandering. I would point out that if you only start 50-50, they can't keep growing it. You may get 60-40 or even 65-35. You're not going to get 80-20. The numbers simply won't work out. So they're right now at the peak of what they can extract from the census. They've done it very intelligently and cleverly by voter suppression and by uh, gerrymandering. So you're saying if they could freeze this last census in amber, they'd be happy. You are absolutely right. They cannot improve and they can lose. So a bad census could lead you to make the argument, we shouldn't reapportion like we didn't reapportion in, in 1920 because we had a flawed census. And if enough state legislators and governors make that case, they'll be able to do it. So what's really at stake if you undercount a population during the census? All major surveys that are done with any kind of scientific rigor whatsoever are standardized to the census data. Therefore, if the census data are flawed, if they have a big undercount, everything else replicates that undercount. Our unemployment numbers, our health numbers, our transportation numbers, our housing numbers, every other major piece of statistical work using sample surveys is necessarily flawed to the degree to which the census is flawed. So that's a huge cost to the society if you want to make public policy based on numbers. In addition to the knock-on effects of bad data, what else is at stake? Let us say that the sense of the country is this was a bad, poorly done census. Sooner or later, we feed the numbers back to cities and counties and the mayors, pour over these data and say, wait a minute, there are more kids in our school system than you counted. This doesn't look like our transportation system that you've counted. This isn't a good count. That then can go viral. Here's one of the consequences of that for me that frightens me, I must say. If it's a failed census, why don't we privatize it? give it to Google, Apple, Microsoft, whatever, and turn it into a commercial operation where people will do it well because they're getting paid to do it well. What bugs you about privatization of the census? I mean, it's worked so well in the military and education and our prison system. Some of that's a matter of judgment. (laughs) (laughs) No, let us say, of course, it can work. I think some things are a public good. And I think widely shared, high-quality statistics are a public good. And I'm happy to contract out. We wrote a huge contract to Lockheed in 2000, and we benefited enormously from their talent. What were they doing? They were doing the data capture, Mm -hmm. uh, intelligent character recognition and so forth, very advanced work. Sounds fancy. No, it was very well done. But as soon as you privatize something, you necessarily have to build in a profit If you're trying to make money off of this, you think differently than if you're a public good institution. And it's in the Constitution right from the beginning. We would not have representative democracy without the census. I would like it to be a public good. Is it too late to save the 2020 census? Uh, uh, It is not too late, but I'm not optimistic because, one, leadership really matters, and I don't see rapid movement on finding a new director, and budget matters, and I don't see any rapid movement. I see the opposite. But can it be fixed? Absolutely. Three years is long enough if you have enough money and you have the right leadership. What about the pressure of mayors on congressional representatives? That will begin to build. They want the data. They need the data to govern. There's a reason we open up 435 census offices, by the way, because every member of Congress likes to know about his own district or her own district. But we're on a new landscape. It's a mystery to me how we will govern ourselves or think about ourselves. We simply don't have a good handle on the degree to which you can lose confidence in the numbers of an advanced democracy. We've never governed it as if we did not believe in numbers. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Dr. Kenneth Pruitt is the author of What is Your Race? 
the Census and Our Flawed Efforts to Classify Americans. And he served as the director of the Census Bureau from 1998 to 2001. Serious undercounts have happened before. In 1970, when the Bureau estimated it had overlooked 5.3 million Americans, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights found that the process for counting Spanish-speaking people had been, quote, confusing and disastrous. On the question of race, the 1970 census offered only white, black, American Indian, and a variety of Asian categories. And so if one was Mexican-American, for example, their parents had emigrated from Mexico, they were born in San Antonio, or they were born in Los Angeles, the stated recommended option for them was to check off white. Christina Mora is a sociology professor at the University of California at Berkeley. She says the undercount was especially frustrating for advocates seeking more federal aid for an underserved population that we now know as Hispanic. The trouble was, it wasn't clear in the 1970s that there even was such an identity. Mora is the author of Making Hispanics, How Activists, Bureaucrats, and Media Constructed a New American. She says the cause was taken up by the National Council La Raza, an activist group focused on Mexican-American issues, which started in the Southwest. They saw, for example, dire levels of poverty, schools were underfunded, they saw the need for job training programs, but lawmakers and the federal government would relegate them to regional or state issues that did not merit national funds. Puerto Ricans were rallying around the same exact issues in the Northeast, mainly in New York and in Philadelphia. And so the first initial steps was to create an alliance between Mexican-American and Puerto Rican issues. I wonder what was the process for determining that the word Hispanic would be used, because it was by no means a universal way of describing Spanish speakers, especially on the East Coast. As they got together, there were several different labels that could have been used. They had labels like Spanish-speaking, but many activists feared that this would not cover those Latinos that basically didn't speak Spanish. Spanish surname was also quite difficult. My favorite example is the former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. He would not have been necessarily Spanish surname. Then there were two funny labels. One of them was brown. Activists offered this at one point. This fit in with many of La Raza and Chicano nationalist philosophies at the point of Latin American populations being a sort of mixed people of different origins and different races. But from a statistical point of view, this would have been a nightmare. No one was positive that the lightest-skinned Latinos, like Vicente Fox, for example, would have seen themselves as brown. Latin American was seen as too foreign, un-American. And the Hispanic label was used in part because many of the Latino activists at that point were actually from New Mexico, where the term Hispanic was really popular. In fact, when they tested the category in California, people didn't necessarily recognize the label. Hence, the need for a big media push. The media, particularly Univision, which at that time was called the Spanish International Network, had a direct interest in selling advertisers on the power of this large Spanish-speaking market. Yeah, and power that is hard to sell if you don't have the data to sell it. Univision had no data to show to McDonald's, Crafts, General Mills, and other corporations that could potentially advertise. They hired agencies to create consumer market surveys. But this data was never quite as believable as what the census could provide. Univision got busy. Mm -hmm. They said, we'll create commercials, we'll create documentaries, we'll create segments on our news and talk shows telling people to mark themselves off as Hispanic on the census forms. Hola, soy Chichi Rodriguez. Todavía hay tiempo para devolver el cuestionario del censo del 80. Now that was uh, golfer Chichi Rodriguez. And there were a whole series of other prominent Spanish speakers, mostly athletes. Hi, I'm Efren Herrera de Seattle Seahawks, and this is my family. Hola, soy Efren Herrera de los Seattle Seahawks, y esta es mi familia. Yeah, this was a rallying message. The fact that the media was out there, the fact that activists were given town halls, really imploring people to trust the census and to identify with the Hispanic category, helped quite a bit. Now, this is kind of weird, because on the one hand, the activist community is trying to get better data 
to prove that the population needs services and government help. The National Council of Raza is pleased to announce the release of a report that looks at what's been happening to the Hispanic community in the decade of the 80s. And the Hispanic reality is not in keeping with the American dream. On the other hand, Univision's trying to tell its advertisers, no, this is a huge uh, potential marketplace. Reach the Johnson & Johnson para una limpieza mejor. Yeah, they both need the data in order to spin a narrative. Whether that narrative is going to McDonald's and say, this is how large we are, this is our potential. Activists uh, need that data to tell federal government, this is a national minority community facing severe crisis, and we need national attention on this. So... Univision was all in with this idea, but they had to signal this in ways beyond just TV commercials and documentaries, right? Yeah, so soon after the census, they invested their resources in what they called American-Hispanic programming. So they began, for example, with a nightly network newscast in which they got Mexican anchors, but also Puerto Rican and Cuban reporters. And one of the things that they did in order to really signal this American-Hispanic identity was submit their anchors and their reporters through a sort of language training camps. And they wrote endless language manuals that taught news reporters how to de-accentize their Spanish. In the industry, they would eventually come to call this a Walter Cronkite Spanish, that didn't use colloquialisms or sayings that were particular to specific communities. Another trick they tried was to develop what they thought of as a Latin look, sort of olive skin tone and dark eyes. Wait, 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 wait. This is amazing. You mean they didn't want to be too brown? They went for tan. To some extent. Uh, over time, they'd be criticized for whitening or for not paying attention to a significant Black Latino population. But in the beginning, this was a lot of social experimenting. Leaders of panethnic organizations knew that in order to deal with the state, in order to use data, they had to represent themselves as Hispanic. But with everyday people, they would say, look, Hispanic is a complement to your national identity. These things are not mutually exclusive. And that's a very tricky thing to do. What makes you one community is very hard. The answer is not skin color. The answer is actually not Spanish. The answer is not just basically you're south of the U.S. border. It's actually quite ambiguous. It's about something related to culture, something related to values, and something related to an experience of underrepresentation and being a minority. One of the difficulties activists had in claiming that Latinos were all equally underrepresented was the fact that many Cubans weren't. There were these real differences in poverty levels, education levels, and in social conditions that had to be papered over in order to create these arguments about a national minority. Are Latinos in 2017 more likely to think of themselves as a homogenous group than they were in 1980? The first study we have was done in 1989, and roughly about 20 to 25 percent of Latinos answered yes, they feel Hispanic. By 2012 and onwards, that number is upwards of 90%. Identity is tricky, and it never perfectly matches onto the classifications that are assumed to represent how we think and feel and how we move about and see ourselves in the world. And so all of these classifications from things that we might have thought were hard and fast, like male and female or black and white, are subject to change and subject to scrutiny, and they should be. Christina, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Christina Mora is a sociology professor at the University of California at Berkeley and author of Making Hispanics, How Activists, Bureaucrats, and Media Constructed a New American. Can we count on you? You can count on me. Coming up, governments purchase spyware from cyber arms dealers when they can't make their own. This is on the media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. 
Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, the New York Times broke an explosive story. A cyber attack via text message. That's what the Mexican government is suspected of doing to some of its critics using advanced spyware technology. Among those reportedly spied on were the lawyers representing the families of the 43 students who disappeared from the Ayotzinapa Teachers College in 2014 in Mexico, as well as award-winning journalist Carmen Aristegui. They send you a text message, essentially. Maybe something that involves you, something involves your company. And if you click on the link, it downloads the software, and that software then basically takes over your phone. That software is called Pegasus, and it's developed by the NSO Group, an Israeli cyber arms dealer. NSO is just the latest such dealer to be exposed, but this one has strong ties to the U.S., The majority owner appears to be a San Francisco-based firm named Francisco Capital Partners. John Scott Railton, senior researcher at the Toronto-based Citizen Lab, has been investigating the use of spyware against Mexican activists and journalists. Tracking this kind of spyware is tough, he says, but not in this case. The operator of NSO was reckless in how they conducted this targeting and how noisy and visible it was. But it's a microcosm of the much more subtle targeting that takes place undiscovered. This isn't the first investigation the Citizen Lab has conducted into misuse of NSO software. And he says each investigation opens a window onto the next. The case that we're talking about here began in August 2016 with two text messages sent to a human rights defender in the United Arab Emirates named Ahmed Mansour. The text messages came bearing links. Had Mansour clicked on those links, they would have infected his iPhone, turning it into a spy in his pocket, capable of monitoring his phone calls, the things he says around his microphone, and his movements too. And from that investigation, we found evidence that there were also Mexican cases. That led to a collaboration with several Mexican organizations, R3D, Social Tick, and Article 19, to gather evidence of potential targeting of Mexican civil society. Mansoor didn't click on it. But how was he enticed to click on it? Well, the text messages proposed new secrets about people jailed in Emirati prisons, which was an issue that Mansoor's advocacy touches on. Instead of clicking, he thought something was amiss. This isn't the first time or even the second time that Mansoor's government targeted him with sophisticated government-exclusive spyware. It's the third time. And so Mansoor each time has shared the targeting with Citizen Lab, resulting in investigations of the companies. When we found the first case, we were able to scan for other servers that behaved in a similar way. And by far the largest apparent use was in Mexico. One of the people targeted in Mexico was the journalist Carmen Aristegui, who'd been instrumental over the past few years in revealing a corruption scandal involving Mexican President Peña Nieto's wife. How was she targeted? Carmen received, over the course of a year and a half, a slew of messages, some of them abusive, some of them sexual, some of them threatening, some pretending to be the United States government, all with the same goal, to convince her to click on a link, which would result in the infection of her phone. The people operating the campaign, though, were not satisfied with targeting Carmen, and they sent over 20 messages to her son, who was located in the United States during the time that they were targeting his mother. So you say that the United Arab Emirates used it and the government of Mexico used it. How do you know that it's the government's? 
we have strong circumstantial evidence based on who was targeted with infection attempts, based on the substance of the targeting, based on the location of the targets. This is government-exclusive software, right? It's only sold to governments? That's correct, which means that when you find it, you know that you're looking at a government. Governments purchase a certain number of infections that they can have live at any given time. So I might purchase the ability to have 10 phones under monitoring, which means that the companies that sell this stuff keep the technology under fairly close control. What we're looking at is an environment in which technologies that perhaps 10 years ago were only the purview of governments that could sort of develop them in-house are now being sold to any government that can pay. So that means that the smallest government or even a well-heeled independent organization could do it. Well, so this is an interesting question. We published a report back in February that showed that Mexican campaigners for the soda tax, public health scientists and consumer advocates, were targeted with NSO Group's spyware. Now, it's unclear why the Mexican government would target those individuals. Others have raised the possibility that the government might have been working on behalf of private interests who had a lot to lose from the soda tax. Mm. This kind of software is marketed to investigate criminals and to track terrorists. That's right. Every company that Citizen Lab has investigated makes the same pitch. But time and time again, what our investigations and other groups' investigations reveal is something that we like to call informally the principle of misuse. If you take something so powerful and so hard to discover and you put it in the hands of a government that does not have a robust rule of law and accountability around the use of secret surveillance, it will be misused for political purposes. It's only a matter of time. The NSO group claim that they do due diligence around sale. Now, taking the example of the UAE for a second, you have not one but two prior cases of the misuse of government-exclusive spyware by the UAE government, the misuse of a tool called FinFisher, made by a UK and German company named Gamma Group, and the misuse of hacking team's remote control system made by an Italian company. Now, if I were selling government-exclusive spyware and the UAE asked me for a bid, I can't think of a better case where due diligence would suggest that it was likely to be misused again. You've mentioned a bunch of other companies that do the same thing. Is this a new industry, government-exclusive spyware? The industry is relatively new. Historically, whenever a despot encounters somebody who he wants to monitor, somebody scurries off and monitors a phone line. As more and more communications are encrypted, which is great, that doesn't work as well. Enter government-exclusive spyware, which promises that regime the ability to regain visibility on communications that they could no longer monitor. Let's talk about NSO, which is at least partly owned by an American company, Francisco Capital Partners. It's operating internationally. It's claiming to do its due diligence, but I guess ultimately it exists in a fairly ambiguous space from a legal standpoint. Are there legal implications for these companies for the misuse of their software? The legal environment in which these companies operate is still fairly gray. They may be subject to certain export restrictions from the countries where the technology originates. However, a little bit like the arms market, this market thrives in the gray spaces that are less than fully regulated. R3D, Social Tick, and Article 19 presented a formal complaint to the Mexican government, which points out the likelihood that this targeting was illegal under Mexican law. There was an announcement in the middle of this week that the Mexican government would be conducting an investigation into this case, although it remains to be seen, given that they are the party accused of using this, whether or not that investigation will be capable of finding the truth. You know, it's interesting how responsive to the market these organizations are, because they don't only sell bugs, they also sell bug detectors. It is kind of like the arms market, isn't it? That's right. And indeed, some of the companies that play in this space get their investment from arms dealers. There are reports that NSO Group, trying to hide from the bad publicity caused by our reports and others, may be considering a name change, changing their name to Q, like the letter, Cyber Technologies. This would not be the first time that a company selling spyware 
has tried by using a name change to escape the bad Google results. Ultimately, though, what it shows and what they must know is that even potential customers can't necessarily trust that another customer will not expose the whole operation by using the technology recklessly. And it points to the uncertainty even that a government interested in purchasing this stuff would face. Because the recklessness of the use in Mexico, for example, brings risk to all of the other government users of this technology by exposing how the technology works to researchers like us. Thank you very much, John. Thank you so much. John Scott Railton is a senior researcher at Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. We contacted NSO for an interview. They declined to speak to us. Salvador Camarena is a Mexican journalist who knows the consequences of government pressure and hacking all too well. He joined broadcast journalist Carmen Aristegui's reporting team in January 2015, two months after it broke the news of the major scandal called Casablanca or White House. About how the president Peña Nieto and his family has a fancy house in a very fancy neighborhood that is values in something around $7 million. The tricky question was, how come the president has this house if he has been in politics his whole life? The answer was not good for the president. A Mexican journalist revealed he is living in a new mansion in Mexico City, which is owned by a Mexican construction firm, a firm that has won many government contracts. The $7 million home is spectacular, all white, marble floors. Very it looked especially bad for Peña Nieto, whose party had ruled for seven decades until pushed out by a population weary of corruption. He just brought his party back in 2012. Yeah, and they have this promise and they have changed and they have learned the lesson. But when we discovered this thing, it was like the old time, the corruption times. Facing public outrage, the president actually apologized. Pido perdón. Le reitero mi Carmen Aristegui's reporting team, meanwhile, lost their jobs and her popular show was canceled. We got fired in March 2015, and they say it was a difference between Carmen and the company, and it's a private company, but everyone was crystal clear that it was a punishment. Broadcasters in Mexico rely on government advertising for survival, and the employer of this intrepid team of investigative reporters may have caved in to bottom-line pressure. Meanwhile, Sal Camarena, like Carmen Aristegui, started to receive strange text messages. Like someone trying to reach you in order to let you know that his father has died, and he said, check this link for the details about the ceremony. These messages were trying to fool you, to do the click. Unfortunately, he did click. And then he, too, carried a spy in his pocket. But he didn't realize that until about a year later, when a former colleague of his, Rafael Cabrera, who was also getting weird texts, learned from Citizen Lab that they were part of a much larger hacking scheme. Now Camarena is director of investigative journalism at an NGO called Mexicans Against Corruption and Impunity. Mexican President Peña Nieto has denied his government hacked journalists and activists, but those hacked demand the inquiry, even if no justice is done. In fact, they don't expect it. When 43 students from a rural school in the state of Guerrero disappeared in 2014, there also was an investigation, but no justice. They were on several buses on a trip. The police detained those buses. And after that, we don't have any news. We don't have real answers about what happened to these 43 students. Who stood to gain by eliminating 43 students who were studying education? Guerrero, this state is, um, is a mess. Sorry, but that's the perfect word. We don't have... Because of drug cartels or because... Yes. Yes, yes because of heroin. Heroin. Most of the heroin consumed in the United States is produced in Guerrero. The buses were being used to transport heroin? Actually, yeah, bro. <laughs> For us, it took like 18 months to get to that kind of a clue. It's very important to remember one thing. 
In order to get to that point, we had to ask an international body, the Organization of American States. They came and they helped us to investigate. We need help from abroad in order to know what is happening in Mexico. Because the government is not willing, you believe, to investigate this crime. Yeah. At the very beginning, they were thinking and they were saying it was a local problem. Unbelievable. And so, circling back to the surveillance, has anybody in the government ever gone to jail for performing this kind of surveillance without a warrant? Mm, good question. I don't remember, and I don't want to lie or to mislead, but let me tell you something that could answer that kind of question. Mm -hmm. In 1984, so long time ago, Manuel Buendía, the most respected journalist at the moment, was killed in Mexico City. For that case, yes, some people went to jail. From the year 2000 to now, more than 100 journalists have been killed. In 17 years, no more than five people have been charged for more than 100 cases. No one in the government was able to conduct an investigation in their proper manner in order to get someone in jail. So five people charged, no convictions, 100 dead journalists, 17 years. That's correct. Sal, thank you very much. Brock, I am a big fan. Thank you. <laughs> you risk yourself to do the work you do. We just sit in our semi-air-conditioned offices doing no, it. No, no, no. Working in Mexico City as a journalist is very close to working in New York City as a journalist. And I know that I have been living in both cities doing journalism. Mm -hmm. So I can prove that. Mm -hmm. But doing journalism outside Mexico City, it's a hell, a living hell. So thank you for watching us. Thank you for calling us. And please, let's keep in touch because so many good reporters are facing real threats around my country, and it's very important to have international attention to them. We will continue. Thank you so much, Sal. Rock. Un abrazo, we say in Spanish. <laughs> Sal Camarena is the director of investigative journalism at Mexicans Against Corruption and Impunity. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Jane Vaughn, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.